0: We are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to lay out for you guys what we have coming up the next several weeks. I ended up changing everything up yesterday. It's not my habit before uh, I preach, but it flows better. It's going to be better. Today what we're going to do, we're we're in a spiritual gifts study the last several weeks. This morning we're going to look at two gifts. The gift of discerning of spirits and then celibacy, which some of you guys may not have thought of. Next week, what we're going to do is we're going to do the gift of miracles, the gift of healing that was operative. And then we're going to end with the gift of prophecy. I've been intentionally saving that one for last. It's one of the hardest for me. And then my intent after that is I want to do a study Uh, just one week on talking about the issue that goes on in the church of are these gifts operating today um, or only some of them? Uh, It's the cessationist or the continuationist debate. So I want to outline that debate for you guys if you've been involved in it, if you've wondered about it. Are these gifts in operation? Are they not in operation? Or are they in operation in a different way? Um, And then I'll also kind of outline for you where I land in that whole debate. I think it's an important debate but I don't think it's, uh, it's one of the main issues. But it is something that we need to be mindful of in the church. So, discerning of spirits. Paul mentions this gift in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to begin in verse 8. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, and following prophecy to another the ability to distinguish between spirits. Let me pray for our study this morning. Father God, as we seek to understand the gifts that You give to Your church, they are manifestations of the Spirit of God for the common good and upbuilding of Your church. and So they're important. They're beneficial. They're useful. They supply what you want your church to have and to be. And so, Father, let us consider these diligently. Let us, as Paul said, seek to have these spiritual gifts because all of them, when Paul wrote this, were in operation and they were good. They were useful. They were beneficial. And so, Father, help us to seek spiritual gifts, especially... Prophecy, teaching, upbuilding in your truth, in your word. But Father, today we ask that you give us understanding of both the gift of celibacy and also the discerning of spirits, what that is. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Discerning of spirits, this is the only place in the New Testament that this phrase and this gift is mentioned. It isn't, however, the only place that this idea is captured. And so as I was outlining this, I actually had next week's gift of miracles, gift of healings going and outlined. And um, I thought, you know, I don't want to rush through discerning of spirits. I want to give some background and really set the stage for this gift because, uh, because of where our culture's at in worldview. First okay? um, John 4.1 And following, here's what John wrote, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now already in the world. Why do I want to take time to set up the worldview behind this gift? Because we live today in a society and in a world that is very naturalistic and materialistic in its thinking. Okay, So I want to do some background in worldview so that we can properly identify what this gift is and see it in operation today. And once we do that, I think it will help us uh, tremendously. Some Christians, unfortunately, especially non-Christians, are heavily influenced by these worldview issues. I teach worldview at the Christian school and I see, even at that young age, I teach eighth grade, even at that young age, elements of a materialistic, naturalistic worldview have crept into the kids' thinking. Okay? Here's what a worldview, a naturalistic worldview admits. Only those things that you can see, those things that you can touch, those things that you can hear. There is no such thing as spirit. There is no such thing as soul. We are purely physical. The universe world and all the creatures and things in it are material, purely material things. This worldview really has uh, been around forever, um, but it took root in America in the 18 and 1900s. It was heavily influenced by liberal critical scholarship of the New Testament. Um, The German scholars, if you've done any background in that or if you're interested in that, there's a school of German scholars who um, studied critically the Scriptures and basically made pronouncements upon the Scriptures of what is true, what isn't true, what we need to ignore, what we don't need to ignore. One of those scholars was a man named Rudolf Boltmann, And here's what he said. He argued that the New Testament needs to be demythologized. Okay? And from this, what he meant was all those mythological elements that we read in Scripture, and what he identifies as mythological elements is the reality of demons, the reality of angels, the supernatural, miracles. All those elements that we find in the Scriptures, mythology, we need to demythologize the Scripture so that this modern scientific culture can read this and believe it. Now, what happens? The only problem is that the Bible says those things are true. And so what you've got going on here is a worldview battle. Either those things are false and the world really isn't spiritual. God really doesn't act in the world. There is not such things as demonic influence or demonic activity or angelic influence, even for that matter. Or there is. Some people even went so far as to argue that demons and angels were simply metaphor in the Scripture to identify good and bad people or good and bad organizations, so on and so forth. It's just metaphor. They're not real. The problem with that is that the Bible presents a picture of the world that says they are real. Okay, The Bible portrays a world where demonic influence in particular, which is what we're going to cover, is not only real, but it's prevalent. First John 5.19, I remember the first time I read this verse right after I became a Christian. It says this, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I read that and it blew my mind. I thought, the whole world is under the influence of Satan. That was foreign to my worldview before I came to Christ. Yeah, according to the Apostle John. He also says in Revelation 12.9 that Satan is the deceiver of the whole world. There's no reason, in other words, to think that the world is under any less demonic activity than it was when the New Testament authors wrote what they did. Now, if you guys have spent any time in the Scriptures at all, it's not difficult to come across passages where the supernatural is operating in the natural, right? One of my favorite examples, I love this, uh, in seminary we talked about it, was in the Gospel accounts after the resurrection when Jesus... Um, suddenly appeared in a room, a locked room, and then disappeared. He was on the road to Emmaus, right, eating, and then disappeared. And critical scholars used to scoff at passages like that, saying, that's just fairy tale. People don't disappear and reappear. That's just mythology. Until they changed their tune once quantum mechanics were discovered. If you know what quantum mechanics are, quantum mechanics says, hey, there's activity on a quantum level that we can't explain, we can't go about, and it goes against all known physical laws. We don't know how they operate together. And what they discovered was that the four uh, space-time, all the dimensions that we experience, there's actually probably 11 dimensions in reality. And these very critical scholars said, well, you know, if there was a being who had access to those other dimensions we now know exist that we don't have access to, it would be very possible for him to appear and reappear or disappear out of a room. If he could access those dimensions we don't have, theoretically, yes, that's very possible. They changed their tune with the discovery. And that tends to happen quite often. So there's no reason to think that the world is under any less demonic or angelic, activity than it was in the New Testament times. In fact, the end times, the Bible says, will be heavily characterized by the activity of Satan and the coming of Antichrist. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 with me, if you will. So not only does the Bible not say that that demonic activity will stop, it actually says it will ramp up in the end of days. Okay? uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul talks about this very thing. Beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a what? Spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. He goes on, do you remember, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is what? by the activity of who? Satan. With all power, false signs, and wonders. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they love, they refuse to love the truth, and so be saved. The Bible promises a day when there will be coming an Antichrist, a lawless one, one who exalts himself as God, and he will oppose everything righteous, everything good, And His coming is in accordance with the activity and power of Satan. And accompanying that activity will be false signs, false wonders, and all deception. If you open up the book of Revelation, that whole book is about that. So yes, there is demonic activity. There is angelic and godly activity going on. We do not live simply in a materialistic world. I don't necessarily want to labor that point. I think that we probably agree on that. okay? But let's talk about some other issues in relation to that that kind of stem off from that. okay? Well, if, if satanic activity is real and angelic activity is real, um, we need to deal with, well, who's responsible for sin? Some of us... Might have a problem with a road rage, as we typically call it, right? Jill always gets on to me. When I go back to the big city, Albuquerque, where I'm from, it's like I switch into a different person. I get all tense and frustrated and I can't blame that on Satan. But I have heard people try to blame their sin on Satan. Satan made me do it. Is that the reality? Well, not evil. Not all evil and not all sin is from Satan. And not all evil and not all sin is from demons, but some is. Let's look at this. What we find in the New Testament is this. The authors of the New Testament are constantly telling their audiences to not sin. And they're putting it on you, right? Don't sin anymore. Cut it out. Come to agreement. Love each other. For example, Paul told the church at Corinth that there's a problem in that church um, with dissensions. You remember... Paul opens his letter and says, hey, there's a group of you saying I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Jesus, right? There are factions and divisions and dissensions. And they're exalting one person over the other and claiming loyalty to one over the other. And Paul says, who are we? We're just servants. He had to deal with dissensions. And how did he deal with it? He said, I rebuke that spirit of dissension among you. No, that's not what he said. He didn't blame it on a spirit of dissension. He said, y'all are sinning, Cut it out. Come to agreement. He put it on them. Or when the Corinthians were taking each other to court in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 because they couldn't exercise biblical love or trust, rather than working out their problems that they had, they were suing each other. They were using the court of law and Paul has to argue, he says, look, do you guys know that you're not, you're one day, you're going to judge angels. Can you guys not work out your problems without going to a secular court? It would be better, he says, for you to let yourself be defrauded than to do what you're doing. What we don't find Paul saying is, I rebuke that spirit of litigation in you. No. He says you guys are sinning. Start loving each other. Start trusting each other. Let yourself be defrauded. Don't be so selfish. Come to agreement. James makes this point I think the clearest for us, though, go to James chapter 1. In James chapter 1, verse 13, he writes this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. So we can't blame our sin on God. God didn't make me do this. And by the way, you hear atheists and A lot of people who are angry at God blame God for the way they are. Right? Well, God made me this way. No, He didn't. That was a sinful choice you made. I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one with evil. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by what? His own desires. Now, he's lured and enticed maybe by Satan, but it's his own desires that Satan is using. It's like a, it's a, the, the term there that James uses is a fishing term. For those of you who fish, you'll get this. You put a hook in the water, but you've got to disguise the hook with bait. Right? The fish says, that looks good. I'm going to take a bite. And he's drug off to his death. That's the word lured and enticed. Satan uses your own sinful passions to lure you in, to get you to bite, and then He'll drag you off to your death. That's how it works. If you had no sinful desires, Satan's got nothing. In fact, First John 1.5, that's exactly what it says of Jesus, of God. The Scripture says this, in God there's no darkness at all. Literally, there's no consequence of sin in God. He can't be tempted. Why? Because there's no consequence of evil in Him. There's nothing to grab hold of. So we are all tempted by our own sinful desires. And yes, we might be tempted by Satan or demonic influences, but it's our own sin. Where we do find demonic oppression most often in the Scripture is when, or or not only oppression, but demonic opposition is probably the better word, some demonic oppression, but demonic opposition is when the Gospel and the truth is being proclaimed. Every time the church starts preaching the truth, what happens? They're met with opposition. So we do see that, without a doubt, an emphasis in Scripture. Why is that? Because the Gospel, guys, Paul says in Romans 1, is the power of God unto salvation. Satan hates God, and he hates everyone. God loves everyone and wants to save them if the Gospel is the power of God to save people, it makes sense that that's where opposition would be found. Right? And every time in the Scriptures you see Paul preaching in the book of Acts, what is he met with? Opposition by the Jews or opposition by Gentiles? That's where demonic opposition rears its ugly head. We see it quite often... Uh, There's a number of passages that you could turn to. I mean, literally, there's a ton of passages you can turn to. First Corinthians 10.20, Paul said it this way, that what the Corinthians, and he's talking about not the church, but the the town of Corinth, sacrificed in their temples, they offered to demons, not to God. In 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul warned that in the latter days, some would, quote, depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. In both cases, their worship or their teaching was demonically influenced. And it's interesting, in 1 Timothy 4.1, the two things that Paul says were uh, demonically deceitful spirits and teachings of demons was abstaining from marriage and not being allowed to eat certain foods that God made to eat with thanksgiving. We look at that and say, gosh, there's some denominations that prohibit that. Yeah, they're under demonic influence if they forbid that. They're not necessarily demonically possessed, but definitely demonically influenced. God created marriage and He created food to be received with thanksgiving. Jesus, however, I think this is the strongest one. If you want to turn to John chapter 8, the men's group is going through the book of John, so you'll be familiar with this. Jesus strongly asserted to the Jews who opposed him that they were under the influence of Satan and they picked up stones to kill Jesus because of it. In John chapter eight, we'll just read one verse. Really, the whole chapter probably needs to be consulted with this, but verse 44 really summarizes it. it says this to the Jews, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He the devil was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. So, just to stop real quick, it makes sense again, if, if Satan has nothing to do with the truth and is opposed to all truth, then when the truth is proclaimed, what should you expect to find? Opposition to it by Satan. You know, I think Satan could care less about what sin or temptation or whatever you might be. Involved in. Not not that he can care less. Because it can trip you up. right. Satan can get a foothold. We'll get to that. What Satan cares about most, though, is opposing the truth and its proclamation. He goes on, though. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar. And the father of lies. So we see passages like this all over the New Testament. Satanic activity in the natural realm, even amongst people, even amongst people as the Jews were who thought they were doing God's will. There was the presence of satanic influence. And I say influence and not possession, especially in relation to believers. There's a question out there, and if any of you have it, I want to answer this. Maybe you know it, maybe you don't. The Bible does not teach that a believer can be possessed of Satan. He is possessed of the Holy Spirit and He's sealed according to Ephesians chapter 1. You are the Lord's and you are a new creation. You are no longer Satan's possession. Maybe at one time you were, but if you're a child of God, you are no longer. You are His. Does that mean then that Satan cannot have influence in a believer's life? No. He can. And he does. Okay, let's talk about this for just a second. There's many passages that we could turn to, but Ephesians chapter 6, if you want to go there, if there was no such thing as demonic influence or opposition or anything else of that nature in a believer's life, then why did Paul spend so much time talking about, for instance, what he talks about in Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? Stand against the schemes of the devil. Does that speak of opposition to you? Absolutely. And you need armor to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul makes that emphatic. Your struggle in proclaiming truth and ministering the gospel is not against flesh and blood it's against the schemes of satan who's operative in his children and in the world and who will oppose you at every turn as you preach the gospel understand that so we are to have armor and he goes on in verses 13 through 18 to list what that armor is you need armor for this battle in 2 Corinthians 10:3-5 you also need weapons But Paul says there in 2 Corinthians 10 that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual for the tearing down of strongholds. And what's interesting there is the strongholds he talks about is the lies and deceptions that people have believed from Satan. It's not, I have a stronghold of alcohol or I have a stronghold of pornography in my life. No, that's not the stronghold. You've actually been freed from that power if you're a Christian, you're just choosing to still walk under its influence. The stronghold in someone's life is a liar deception that they have believed. And Paul says our weapons are divinely powerful to destroy those. What's that weapon? Truth. Word of God. So, that is the one weapon we have because it's the only weapon we need is the truth of God. Peter makes it clear too that Satan is seeking opportunity to destroy God's children. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 says this, Be sober-minded and be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I heard one pastor say when I was a young Christian, said it this way, Satan is patient and he will lie in the grass for 40 years just to trip you up. He's patient. Paul said this, don't be ignorant of the schemes of Satan. Why? Because he's your adversary and he's seeking to trip you up. So yes, Satan can have influence in your life. We are warned by Paul, for instance, not to sin in our anger and so give Satan a foothold. So when believers sin, what are you doing? You're giving Satan an opportunity to wreck your life, shipwreck your faith, take you down a path and destroy you. That's what sin does. It's like the Old Testament. Remember the prophet Balaam who was hired to pronounce curses on Israel? And he couldn't do it. God wouldn't curse His own people. So he finally told Balak the king, I know how to do it. Get him to sin and then God will judge him. And he did. He introduced all the Moabite women. They started marrying, sleeping around, and God brought judgment on his own people. It was sin that led him astray. There's also the pictures the children of Israel were coming into the promised land. The weak, the elderly, whoever, as they stra- straggled behind, what was the enemies of Israel doing to them? Picking them off. They wouldn't go for the group. Right? Sin separates you from the body. And you make yourself an easy target when you're walking in sin. And Satan has your number. You remember the sons of Sceva in the book of Acts. They weren't believers. They saw Paul casting out demons, so they go to a demon-possessed guy and say, hey, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I want to cast you out. And the man responds, well, I know Jesus. I know Paul. I don't know you. Those demons knew who Paul was. You better believe it. As you preach the truth of God, you make yourself a target to the adversary who hates the truth. He's opposed to it all the time. So that's there's a lot more we could look at to build a Christian worldview of satanic or even godly influence. Okay, But that gives us a background of what this gift is going to be. So let's look at the gift itself now that we've done that. The gift of the discerning of spirits. Now I want to caution you it's kind of a not a pet peeve. I mean, I'm not going to blow up or anything. It's not the gift of discernment, okay? Why do I say that? It's the discerning of spirits, and it's different. You find people who have discernment who aren't Christians, right? People have good business discernment. They may have moral judgment. Um, they might understand other situations and, and practice good discernment. It's not the gift of discernment, it's the discerning of spirits. It's called that. So what does that mean? Well, the word discernment, Greek root diakrino, means this. To judge judge through, to see through to the truth, or truly evaluate something. The definition of this gift, the discerning or distinguishing of or between spirits, is an ability to recognize the influence of the Holy Spirit or the influence of demonic spirits in a situation or in people. In other words... As situations unfold, as people live their life, as the church moves forward proclaiming the truth, the discerning of spirits is able to recognize this is a move of God or this is satanic opposition and we need to be careful. Now, I want to I say something else what it is not. It's not discernment, but discerning of spirits. Nor is it the ability... Uh, you guys remember that old film, The Sixth Sense? Remember the kid? I see dead people. Yeah. that's not what this is, okay? <laughs> some people walk around like that kid. I see things. No, you don't. <laughs> Number one. <laughs> it's not this ability to see things that other people see. It's not the ability to, to reach into the past and, and have all... No, that's not what discerning of spirits is. Unfortunately, uh, if, if some of you guys are fans maybe of Mark Driscoll, he was the founder of Mars Hill and the Acts 29 movement with Matt Chandler. Uh, Mark Driscoll claimed to have this gift of discernment, he called it, where he could see into people's past, especially their sexual sins and sexual past, and he'd often call it out. Um, and I, I read his quotes in his interviews, and I actually refused to put it in my notes because they were so outrageous and graphic. It was, it was controversial when he did it, and it's actually, uh, it's not at all what this gift is, even though he claimed that's what this gift was. In fact, what he did and what people who claim that ability, it's a very dangerous thing to claim that because essentially there's no way to prove him wrong. And if someone says, hey, I know 10 years ago you were sleeping with someone, that could absolutely ruin someone's life if they were accused of that and they have no way of proving them wrong. Right? How can you say Pastors are trusted people. And their word usually is trustworthy. And if a pastor is getting in front of his church saying these things about you that are false, it could destroy you. That's not what this gift is. And unfortunately, Driscoll, I think, has influenced a lot of people who've taken that and claimed that ability for themselves. So I just want you all to know, that's not what discerning of spirits is. The Scripture says this, that only God knows the hearts of man. Let me read you some scripture. 1 Corinthians 2.11. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of that man in him? No one knows your thoughts except you and God. I don't know your thoughts. 2 Corinthians, or 2 Chronicles 6.30, King Solomon prayed this. You alone know the hearts of the sons of men. So discernment is not knowing what's in your heart. I'm sorry. I don't know what's in your heart and I don't know your motives. What I can discern is the information that you give me to be able to discern with. If you say something, if you do something, now discernment can be exercised. But no one knows your heart except God alone and yourself. Um, in Jeremiah um, 17, 9, and 10, it simply says this, that God tests the mind and He gives to each person according to His ways. And then in Hebrews 4.12, it says this, the Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the plain message message in Scripture of the Bible is that it is not possible for people to know your motivation or your heart. Be very careful about claiming that I know what you were going to do. How many of you have had marital conflict based on... That, oh, I, you were going to say this, weren't you? No. Oh yeah, you were. I have discernment. <laughs> so this gift of discerning is the activity of demonic influence or even potentially possession or the discerning of the Holy Spirit's leading, movement, working, whatever it might be. So in some degree, let's talk about the positive side of what it is. In some degree, the presence of demonic activity is pretty evident, okay? Um, we read in 1 Corinthians 12, chapter, uh, or verse 2 and 3, chapter 12, 2 and 3, Paul writes, beginning his study on spiritual gifts, he says, no one speaking by the Holy Spirit says that Jesus is a curse. If someone actually says with conviction, Jesus is a curse, that's a demonic influence or possession right there. He's openly and blatantly opposing the Lord Jesus, okay? First um, John 4, 1 through 6 says that same thing, right? That Satan opposes and denies the coming of Jesus in the flesh. Anyone who denies that Jesus came in the flesh... And it's not a tit-for-tat kind of, oh, Jesus came in the flesh, or no He didn't, yes He did, no He didn't. That's not what He's talking about. What's so important about Jesus coming in the flesh? The entire history of redemption, Right? So to deny that Jesus came in the flesh is to deny the very work that glorified Him as the Lord. That's why that's so important. So to deny is blatant demonic influence. Of course Satan would want people to believe that. Why? Because if they believe it, salvation is not possible for them. You have to believe that. So, blatantly false doctrinal statements is pretty evident. There's also, in the Gospels, for instance, and in the book of Acts, those violent and bizarre uh, physical possessions that we witness. Remember the man who had the legion in him who used to gnash himself with rocks and scream out wildly in the hills and no one could bind him, right? He'd break free every time. And as Jesus approached that man, the demon cried out, what do you have to do with us? Is it our time? They knew what was going on. So it's interesting, and I don't necessarily want to get too much into this, but it's interesting that sometimes these manifestations physically in people are masked, I think, by design to look like just a physical condition. For instance, in the Matthew chapter four, and also uh, we have an account, but in Matthew chapter four, Jesus was doing all kinds of work in people, he was healing physical things that were just physical conditions, not satanically. Related, and right next to each other, he says he was healing epileptics and people who were demon possessed. So he identifies epilepsy was a real physical condition he dealt with, and there's also demon possession. But in an, in a, I think it was in Mark, you remember the um, father whose boy would often have epileptic seizures. In that case, it was actually demon possession masked to look like epilepsy. You see what I'm saying? So sometimes Satan is crafty. Sometimes he's tricky. We know that we're told this. He is very crafty. Turn to 2 Corinthians and we'll read this. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 through 15. Let's just read verse 12 too. And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if His servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. It makes sense, Satan being crafty, Satan being wise, as we're told in Genesis, that he would make himself appear to be an angel of light and his workers as workers of righteousness. Why? To deceive the masses. If he has the whole world under his sway, power, and deception, how did he do it? By pretending to be something he's not. And the gift of discerning of spirits recognizes that sounds good, but that's false. And here's why. That appears to be right, but it's not. And here's why. It is able to see through the craftiness and schemes of Satan, which he designs to undermine and destroy the people of God. That's what this gift does. In one case in the book of Acts, I love this one. In Acts chapter 16... Verses 16 through 18, there's a slave girl possessed by a demon who her owners used to divination, right? Used to make money by her divination. And in that case, it's interesting. When Paul and Barnabas came to town, she followed them, yelling, these men are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. That's true, right? But the problem is, everyone in the town knew, oh, those are those demon-possessed girls, don't believe her. See the craftiness there? Oh, that's the demon-possessed girl saying that. Uh, Stay away from those dudes. Crafty. So what does Paul do? He rebukes the demon to come out and keep his mouth shut. Why? So that he could continue to proclaim the truth without hindrance. Craftiness. Satan is smart. He's been doing this a long time. So to some degree, demonic activity is outwardly evident, as I told you. This gift, how does it function? Specifically, and most importantly, it's able to tell true teachers from false teachers. Now, it doesn't look at someone and say, ooh, that guy's a false teacher. You just look weird, man. I don't trust you. That's not discerning of spirits, right? It's able to take what they say and say, uh, there's some things I have some problems with based on what they're saying or doing. Paul, Peter, Jesus all warned primarily on this issue. Um, in fact, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 that one of the signs that will accompany false teachers is that they'll try to exploit you for financial gain. If they're doing that, if they're using the gospel as a means to further their own kingdom, be weary of them. 2 Peter chapter 2 goes all through that. Often, explicitly or blatantly, um, false teachers, there's evidence of demonic influence in their life. As we said, Jesus is a curse. If someone is saying that, you know right away they're not of the Lord. If they refuse to confess Jesus came in the flesh, they're not of the Lord. But what about people which we all err? Is simple error in the truth the same as a false teacher? Or if you're erring in, in one area of doctrine... Does that mean you're demonically possessed or demonically influenced? No. It's different. And I want to point this out because I've, I've seen, um, and even at one time in my own life, started bordering on this of every error that you're able to spot in someone's doctrine, oh man, they must not even be Christians. <laughs> right? You get this very judgmental attitude. you got to recognize, hey, there's there's blatantly false heresy Denying the master. And then there's, well, that's error, but you know what? I, I believe that one time. <laughs> and the Lord corrected me through his word. So make a distinction there. So there's lots of examples we could do. Um, Satan's work, though, to end this gift, Satan's work is always destructive. Whether it's in a believer's life or a non-believer's life, he wants to destroy people because they bear the image of God. And he hates God. So Satan's activity will always be destructive, whether it's his influence in a church trying to drive a wedge between people or people who don't know the Lord yet. okay, He uses lies. He uses harm. He uses persecutions. All things. in his tool belt to do this. The discerning of spirits is able then to see the activity of the Holy Spirit versus the activity of evil and call it out. All right? I have just a few minutes and I don't intend to speak on the second gift long because I know there's all these young single airmen here and the young single women who are like, celibacy, I don't want to know about that. But it's in the scripture. Go to First Corinthians chapter seven, verse seven. Uh, actually, uh, that's where it's mentioned. I want to back up and begin reading verse one. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, <clears throat> it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. You may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession... Not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. It's probably the one gift that no one considers as a spiritual gift when doing a spiritual gift study. But Paul very clearly says there, the gift of singleness which he had and wish that everyone else had was a gift. He says, not everyone has this gift. One person has this gift, others have this gift. But I wish that all were single as I myself. The context of this, Paul's dealing with those who are married and instructions with sexual relationships. Don't deprive each other. Don't stay apart too long. So that Satan doesn't tempt you. And he lays down, uh, he lays down all those principles. I don't want to go through them, but here's, here's the point of what this gift is. Okay. Verse eight, he says very clearly to the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Why does Paul wish that widows, single people would remain single? What is he after? I mean, after all, didn't God create us for relationships? Yeah. In fact, I've taught that from this pulpit. So what is God after? Or what is Paul after here? What does he mean? Follow me um, down to verse um, 32. Okay, we're not going to read all chapter 7. But Paul's going to identify why he makes this statement. He wishes all were single. Verse 32 and following. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things. How to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things. How to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now you could underline that. What is the gift of celibacy? It's the gift of having undivided devotion to the Lord. And why is it a spiritual gift? It's a spiritual gift precisely because unless God enables you by His grace to be this, it is impossible for you to be that. I can testify to that. I don't have this gift. Anybody else there? (laughs) I'd expect that whole row back there to be like, oh, over here. (laughs) But it's good. Paul says it's good. Paul himself was celibate for the kingdom of God. What does that mean for Paul? Paul's devotion and affection was completely on Christ. He was not divided in any way. That's beautiful. It's an act of grace in God's heart to gift you there. And Paul says, look, I'm not commanding you to be single, but it is better if you can be. It is worth, Christ is worth all of our devotion. As a married person, it is just true. Your devotion will be split. In one degree or another, your devotion to the Lord will be split. You'll be concerned about your spouse and her interests or his interests. And that takes away from the Lord. It's not bad, but there's a better way. And that's what Paul says. I wanted to identify it. I, um, I have known, I think, two people, maybe three people in my life who I think were probably gifted in this way. And they're unique. You just know. <laughs> um it's just different than most people. So, I'll close with that. I'll invite the worship team back up and close us in prayer. Fathers, we looked at these gifts. The discerning of spirits, Lord, and, and celibacy. How beautiful both are in their own right, Father. Undivided affection. Undivided devotion to who You are, Lord. We just saying, I surrender. We want to know You more. We want to be able to give all of what we are, what we have to You. But so often it's true that we find ourselves divided and our interests divided, our time divided, our mind divided, our affections divided. Father, as much as possible, may we seek You with all of our heart because You are worth it. And as Paul says, it is better, but not all are are able to do it. Father, with the discerning of spirits, Lord, as the quote says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Father, may we not fall into that trap. May we be able, through this gift and people who are gifted this way, to recognize how Satan schemes against us to trip us up, to discredit our lives, to discredit our ministries, to destroy us. Father, may we discern not only that, but may we discern Your Spirit's leading Your activity in our life. Because You don't work according to carnal means. You work according to Your own means, and they are divinely inspired and divinely empowered. So give us eyes to see, ears to hear, what the Spirit says to the churches. Give us wisdom in Your Word so as to make proper discernment, engaging truth. Is that's where we will be attacked and opposed. For Satan hates it. But Help us to be bold. Help us to be unashamed of the Gospel. As we've been singing out with our heart, Father, may we proclaim it loudly because the power of God will rest on those people who are unashamed of Him. And Satan must flee. Thank You for giving us the victory. We look to You for that victory, Lord, every day walking in Your Spirit that we might not walk in the flesh, and that we might find the way of escape when temptation comes. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.